As Peter said, I'm Harrison Moore, Vice President for Development at Cato. It's so great to see all of you today. As Peter said, we're so grateful for your support and for those of you who have uh, partnered with us for many years. I oversee our fundraising efforts. I work closely with our board of directors and steward the Institute as a member of our leadership team. Um, always energizing to be out of Washington. I mean, we could be anywhere, sort of a low bar, right? But particularly great to be here in Naples. The community here is really unique. You know, you guys provide a lot of feedback for us. Coming to these events gives us energy, motivates, and it's good to rally the troops a lot. I want to reiterate a few things Peter mentioned. For those of you learning more about the Cato Institute and what we do, we're a nonprofit public policy organization based in Washington. We're funded through contributions from individuals across the country. Our mission is to originate and disseminate ideas, research, and policy solutions based on the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. And through this mission, we aim to create a free and open civil society that enables human flourishing and prioritizes the dignity of the individual. We bend the climate of ideas toward freedom in the long run, while also making tangible impact on public policy in the near term. And to achieve this, we engage policymakers, opinion leaders, journalists, students, educators, and the general public. Peter alluded to this, but we're strictly nonpartisan and independent, a reputation that we've upheld since our founding in 1977. And most organizations, as you know, in Washington choose a side. They're either on the red team or the blue team. But we're beholden only to our principles, and that really matters. All of us believe, first and foremost, that ideas, big foundational ideas, matter and that they have consequences. And we believe that all individuals should be free to pursue their idea of the American dream. So I'll talk a little bit more at the end about how to get involved with us, but we hope many of you who are not yet supporters might consider doing so. I would wager that most of us in this room agree that a free and dynamic market economy and society not only produce incredible wealth and prosperity, but that they are morally just. Unfortunately, as Peter said, there are growing factions on the left and the right who argue that classical liberalism, from capitalism to free speech, isn't benefiting American workers, society, or the environment, and that further government intervention and government spending are needed. Allies across the ideological spectrum who used to uphold these values have turned their backs. That's a real problem, and that's why it's important, more important than ever that all of you, me, my colleagues at Cato expand the influence of our ideas and reach new audiences, persuade and defend the values that have allowed hundreds of millions throughout history to prosper. And that's exactly what my colleagues on today's program are focused on. Joan Norberg, our next speaker, embodies and communicates classical liberalisms to broad audiences as well as anyone today. Whenever I see a new documentary or article by Joan, I can't help but think that he's continuing the legacy of Milton Friedman at a time when we could use the Nobel laureate's good cheer and resolute style. I first came across Joan when I uh, began at the Cato Institute in 2008. I figured I'd better read as much Cato material as possible before they figured out I wasn't that smart. So I immediately grabbed Joan's seminal book, which I commend to everyone, In Defense of Global Capitalism. And a briefing paper he wrote for Cato that year, which defended Milton Friedman and his argument that economic liberalization leads to political liberalization. I think that's a really important point. 
Since then, I've continued to look through his work to effectively communicate my worldview, and since then, Joan has continued to uphold Freeman's legacy as a dynamic, approachable, and happy warrior for the cause. You may have seen him on numerous PBS specials, which are produced by Free to Choose Media, or you've come across one of his books, two of which were named um, Books of the Year by The Economist. Joan is part storyteller, part scholar, part eternal optimist, and a common theme I see across all of, that all of his work is that optimism. As dark as the world can seem day to day, we are in fact living through the most amazing period in human history. We would all benefit by remembering this, and we should remember that to effectively advance the critical ideas that have unlocked this progress, openness, inquiry, and the dignity of the individual, we should do so with a smile, as Joan does. Please join me in welcoming Cato Senior Fellow, Joan Norbert. Thank you so much, Harrison, and thank you all of you for being here, and especially, of course, those of you who support the work that Cato does to try to spread freedom around the world and make sure that it's not lost back here. Ladies and gentlemen, my topic today is freedom and human progress, and that sounds innocuous enough, right? It sounds almost harmless, but I'm actually here to tell you how to ruin a perfectly nice dinner party with just a few sentences. You might have used that even tonight, I don't know, we'll see. Because this is what I've come across. Um, whenever someone says, begins to complain about how the world is going to the dogs, that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, that our lifestyle is destroying the climate, or that there's overpopulation, too many people, too few resources. The only thing you need to really upset people is to say that the world is not falling apart. In fact, that goods and services and technologies and opportunities are more equally distributed today than that they have ever been before. And that we are actually coming to grips and beginning to solve global warming, not by abandoning our lifestyle and doing less, the world experimented with that during the pandemic, when we shut down the world and all flights were grounded and we blocked production and trade. That merely reduced our carbon emissions by 6% at a terrible human cost. If we were to reach the Paris Climate Accord until 2030 in this way, we would need one pandemic every year until then. No, we're solving it with human ingenuity and with innovations and with better technologies rather than with fewer. And if you happen to think that there is overpopulation and too few resources in the world, I just say during the dinner party that every human being on average create more resources than they consume. And if you're not convinced, Marian Tupi has a book out there, Superabundance, and a talk about this quite soon. And that's it. Dinner party ruined. <laughs> because have you ever noticed how upset people become when you tell them that the world is not falling apart? That their pet grievance is actually something that people are starting to solve. The moment they get a little bit of freedom to experiment with new ideas and with innovations. When you say that things are actually pretty good on historical um, perspectives, and I think we'll be able to deal with these problems as well 
if people have the freedom to do that. And then lots of people become upset. Because how can I say this in the world we're living in, with the kind of troubles that we're seeing all around the world? And granted, we've had in the past two decades quite a horrible series of problems, disasters, and crises on our hands. Natural disasters and floods and earthquakes, endless wars in the Middle East, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, financial crisis, inflation, and then the pandemic. It's been rough. But the thing is, if you look past the headlines of these very real troubles of the world and look towards the trend lines of objective indicators of human well-being, those 20 years have also been the best years in human history. Really. Because if we measure wealth according to the average GDP per capita around the world, well then, a little bit than, more than half of all the wealth that has ever been created was created over these past 20 years. Extreme poverty has continued to be reduced despite all of these problems. More than 100,000 people were lifted out of extreme poverty every day over those 20 years, despite the pandemic, despite the wars, despite dictatorships in so many places. Child mortality rates have almost been reduced around the world, which means that last year, 4.4 million fewer children died than in 2002. So progress is happening despite all of these problems. The problems are real. But if you're trying to understand the world by just following the news and looking at the drama that has happened since last you tune in, that's very much like trying to understand a city by going to uh, the um, emergency room in a hospital. The things that are going on there are real, real human suffering. But that's not the whole story. That's just the most dramatic and shocking story. For the real story, you have to go out into the communities, the businesses, the research labs, and into real human lives. And then you'll see something different. So why is it that we managed to make this much progress despite all the troubles of the world? Well, it's because human beings are problem solvers. That's how we've come this far. When we face problems, we don't just stand there and suffer from it. We begin to work hard in trying to deal with these problems. Optimism, in my book, has never been the idea that we'll never face problems, that things will magically sort themselves out. That's not optimism. That's just um, magical thinking. Optimism is the idea that we'll always face problems, there will surprise, be surprises that the world and nature throws at us. There will be unintended consequences of our own actions. But optimism is the idea that if people are free to look at those problems and begin to think hard, experiment in new ways to deal with it, they stand a fairly good chance of dealing and solving these problems. Just look at the world during the pandemic. The world basically shut down, with a few exceptions. Florida did better. My own country, Sweden, did, did better. But half of the world's population was under curfew. They were under house arrest. So we grounded the flights. People were not allowed to go to, to their job in the morning. Uh, we blocked borders, blocked trade, incredible human suffering because of this. And the first thing I did was to walk out and buy 
canned foods and toilet paper. Uh, because you know, if the world is shutting down, we need those bare essentials when we walk through this post-apocalyptic landscape that will be the, the inevitable result, right? And I'm sure some of you did the same as I did. You don't have to raise an arm in, in case of that because, you know, we were all quite embarrassed by that just weeks later when it turned out that there was still food on the shelves and toilet paper on the shelves, despite the fact that businesses didn't even get the workforce into the factories, into the shops, into the trucks. They were banned from going there in so many places. They were not allowed to ship things. Inputs, resources were blocked in harbors. And still, they managed to rebuild all those supply chains in real time by looking at what can we do with the workforce at hand? What can we do? How can we tweak manufacturing to produce the stuff we need to produce with other inputs, other resources? And how can we divert shipments and distribution to bypass the, the places that are shut down? And almost magically, as if nothing had happened, it's back on the shelf. We all talked about the strains of the supply chain, but the amazing thing is that entrepreneurs and businesses managed to deal with it in that incredible way despite all the obstacles. It makes me think of Henry David Thoreau, the great American transcendentalist and poet who said that it seems like trade and commerce are made of rubber because they always manage to bounce over the obstacles which legislators are continually putting in their way. Because, you know, progress is intimately connected to freedom because it's all about how we can adapt our behavior to changing circumstances, how we can think anew and make things a little bit differently to solve the problems that we face now. And then every regulation, every ban, every command, every tax is like one of those obstacles that makes it difficult, more difficult to bounce over it, makes it more difficult to adapt to the problems that we face. We have to be able to experiment with strange new ideas, with new innovations, with new production methods and forms of distribution, we have to be, allow people to go wherever their mind, their dreams, and the price mechanism leads them. We have to be open to new surprises. That's why we have progress, because people are still, to quite a remarkable extent, from a historical perspective, quite free to, to do that. So the message is, if you had a time machine and you could go anywhere, back into any era in the past, don't. Just, just don't. Uh, think of, um, I mean, even the best eras that we now think of, that was the golden era of even of American capitalism, the, the 1950s. That's what all the politicians are talking about. We're going to make sure that you get the kind of life that we had in the, in the 1950s. But don't just think about how the 1950s was definite progress over a world war and a great depression. Think about the objective living standards. Think about the fact that more than a third of Americans, uh, more than half of Americans did not have flush toilet in their home back in the day. Think about the best jobs at that time in the automotive factories of Detroit. If you were of the great cohort of the 1953 who got the best unionized jobs and the best wages, those that we're all longing for when we think that now the best we can do is to work in an Amazon warehouse or something like that. How much did they make? The, the, the very best, the few who got the best jobs. They made $1.3 an hour 
and adjusted for inflation, and I have to readjust constantly when I talk about this, of course now, for inflation, it's about a little bit less than $14 uh, an hour, which means that it's slightly less than the entry-level wage in an Amazon warehouse today. That tells you something about how far we've come. Almost one-third of Americans lived under the poverty line. And even the poverty line is not what it's, it used to be. Today, the average American under the poverty line stands a greater chance of owning amenities such as dishwashers, washing machines, dryers, air conditioners and televisions, and of course computers and cell phones than the average American in 1970. So actually, the only thing that was better in the 1950s was the way that they thought of the future. Because that's the one thing that doesn't get any better. Because now we think it's hopeless. Now we despair. In the midst of all those magical opportunities that we've got. And it actually, in my dark hours, it makes me think of Gilbert and Sullivan's comic opera, The Mikado in 1885, when they mocked the idiot who praises with enthusiastic tone all centuries but this, and every country but his own. Life is pretty amazing, but nobody is happy. And I notice that even in this kind of audience, even in, in myself, I, I can see that. I mean, I also wake up every morning, watch my cell phone, the latest news, and think the world is going to the dogs, thinking like Groucho Marx, I'm not crazy about reality, but it's still the only place to get a decent meal, so I might as well go up anyway. And my theory is that we are all depressed because we pay too much attention to politics. We spend too much time thinking about what goes on in Washington. We spend too much time looking at cable news. And that is depressing. That is a depressing world. Most of us, most of you, have experience from the business world. The business world is positive sum. You're looking for how you can be of service to other people. You are thinking all the time, how can I improve the lives of others? Because it's win-win. The only way to enrich yourself is to enrich others. Politics is the opposite. That's like the Super Bowl. Only one team can win. And in that case, you're not in it to try to be, look at how can you be of service to others. You're looking at how can I instill fear and despair and make people worry about the other side so that I can tell them I'm the only one who can protect you from all the troubles of the world. Look to the strong man or the big government to protect us all and solve our problems. Because pessimism is self-fulfilling. If you think that nothing can be done, if you think that we're all victims of circumstance and of oppression, well then someone has to help us out. And politicians are happy to step in. Give us back the old jobs of the 1950s or solve global warming or even deal with the um, extra charges at your hotel. Politicians are always happy to fix all our problems. But the problem is that they do it top down and thereby they lose all that initiative, all that knowledge, all the innovation that takes place when millions of people are free to look for solutions and replace it with just one top down solution and if it's the wrong one, it damages us all. And that's why when I always think of these politicians, top-down politicians and populists of the left and right, who always have one obvious clear answer to all our problems, I think of the old joke of the job interview. The guy sits there and they're, they're asking him, so it says here in your CV that uh, you're quick at maths. 
Uh, yes, yes, I, I am. Okay, so what's 16 times 19? Oh, that's 47. What? That's not even close. No, but it was quick. <laughs> and, and that's the dangerous temptation that's always there. There's always one obvious quick solution that's wrong because it replaces all that initiative of open societies and free markets where we're all free to look for new solutions. And that's a dangerous temptation and that's why I urge you to always look past the drama on the cable news in Washington. Look to real communities. Look to businesses and scientists and technology and how they, when they're free, continue to work hard to solve our problems. We need optimism, otherwise we're all victims. Someone has to take care of all of us. And as a Swede, it saddens me to see this in any place, but especially in America, because this is not what America is about. This is not the reason why one million Swedes in the late 19th century and early 20th century passed treacherous oceans to move into uncharted territory with nothing but their empty hands and big dreams to create the greatest country on the planet. And millions of others, they didn't do it because they think, thought everything was hopeless. Instead, it was that essential belief that the world is still young and anything is still possible. And that belief, I think, is the greatest gift for a country, but especially for those who believe in liberty. And those who have been able to channel this belief have also made it possible to inspire hope and encourage reform, even in the darkest times. As Thatcher in Britain in the late 1970s, as Peter talked about. And that's why I'd like to mention another political hero who managed to channel this kind of optimism and leave you with the message that Ronald Reagan left us all with in his last speech to the Republican National Convention in 1992. This is what he said. My fellow citizens, I want you to know that I've always had the highest respect for you, for your common sense and intelligence and your decency. I've always believed in you and what you could accomplish for yourself and for others. And whatever else history may say about me when I'm gone, I hope it will record that I appeal to your best hopes, not your worst fears, to your confidence rather than your doubts. My dream is that you will travel the road ahead with liberty's lamp guiding your steps and opportunity's arm steadying your way. My fondest hope for each one of you, and especially for the young people here, is that you will love your country and have the heart to conceive, the understanding to direct, and the hand to execute works that will make the world a little better for you having been here. May all of you, as Americans, never forget your heroic origins, never fail to seek divine guidance, and never lose your natural, God-given optimism. Let's not make him disappointed, shall we? Thank you. And now I think we have time for some questions and Objections if you're not convinced. <laughs> There's a microphone coming. Thank you. Uh, that was great, Johan. Your <laughs> Swedish optimism really mitigated my Italian pessimism. So th <laughs> thank you for that. But I still need a little bit more therapy, and I'll, I'll try to be quick. 
One, one of the things that's very troubling to me is uh, in America, I don't know if we've ever experienced in America where we've had a collapse of our national government, where people who think differently end up in jail and in solitary confinement, where the FBI or, or enforcement agencies seize the phone of a sitting U.S. congressman or uh, investigate people who say things on Twitter. I think suffice it to say, our national government currently is in terrible, terrible shape and has collapsed. I just wonder, maybe you can talk about that and maybe give us some examples in history. Have there been times when we've lost so much liberty and the governing body has collapsed and the, and the society has come back bigger and better? I'm sorry for being so long. <laughs> Uh, no, I'll, that's a good question. I'd, I'd love to give you some Swedish therapy uh, because <laughs> there are examples when things haven't, it hasn't been possible to turn it around. You know, we've had golden eras in the past, but people lost faith in their, their accomplishments and um, statists and, and big governments took over. But uh, just mention Sweden as one other example. Britain and America are places that came back in the 1980s. So was Sweden a little bit later. You know, in the early 1990s, Sweden had experimented with all this socialism, and the result was that all big businesses left. IKEA, Tetra Pak, and others left. We had an incredibly intrusive government that even banned some thought crimes. Uh, even if you did tax planning that was legal, if they thought that your intent was to escape taxes, that was banned and you could end up in jail. Well, it ended in a terrible crisis, and in 1992, you know, we complain about high interest rates today. Back then, nobody wanted to lend to Sweden, so for a while, the Swedish Central Bank implemented a 500% interest rate. Not 5, not 50, 500%, and Sweden was going to the dogs. That was the moment in time when everybody realized that this experiment has failed, and in fairly broad consensus, they began to liberalize Sweden's economy again and get back to a very free market model. And once again, Sweden began to outpace others. So the good news is that it can be done anywhere. The bad news is that it had to be fairly miserable before until everybody realized that. And that's one of the reasons why we do this, to remind people of those episodes so that we don't have to go that far before we turn into another direction. Anybody else over there? Hi. Um, I'd like to make two comments and then ask you a question. Uh, the first comment is with regards to network news. There is a book out. I don't know if any of you have ever read it. It's called Hate, H-A-T-E. And I believe the author is someone by the name of Talibi, T-A-L-I, something like that whatever. This book was given to me by my daughter, who is to the left of Karl Marx. But, no, but, but nonetheless, what it points out is that the, the media and the cable news people are actually getting viewership by talking about the worst things, but taking the different position all the time. And so, Viewership is the thing that counts, and our human nature is such is that we like to think of the worst things rather than point out the good things. The second thing I'd like to mention, just another comment, is if you ask people what liberal countries have been successful in the past 
are successful today, what will the answer be? The answer will be there aren't any. There are countries that have tried liberalism, socialism, whatnot, and they've doomed. They have not done well. Now my question to you is, what we're talking about for our next generations is how do we persuade our education system to begin teaching more of all of the spheres that are there to be taught rather than the narrow objectives that they have right now. Thank you. Thank you. Those are good remarks and, and a question. Uh, but let me just address the remarks as well. I think it's true that uh, we pay attention to uh, the drama and the polarization and, and the shocks. Um, and that's why they have to revert to it. Uh, because lots of people don't pay much attention to politics. The few who do are in the tribes, and they have to give them some, some red meat. Uh, but, you know, most people are exhausted by that. Most people uh, go elsewhere for their, uh, their entertainment rather than, than this kind of spectator sport. There are 333 million Americans. I think 330 million of them do not watch the cable news. Uh, but, but we do, and that's why we think the world is there. When it comes to countries who have experimented with socialism, are there any success stories? Well, the country that lots of American socialists go, come back to is Sweden, actually, and say that you, you seem to have been doing well. Well, yes, and I tell them if you want to be like Sweden, then you are going to have to reform social security and partially privatize it. You have to abolish taxes on property, on wealth, on gifts and inheritance. You need to deregulate your economy, abolish occupational licensing, be more free trade, and implement a national school voucher system and give private schools the same funding as the, the public ones. Because those are some of the reforms that Sweden did after having failed with socialism in the 70s and 80s. So that's an important lesson as well. What can we do with education? Well, one of them is uh, school vouchers, more school choice, I think, is a way of giving, handing families that freedom. And that's one of my sources of optimism. That is going on in the U.S. right now in, in many states. Uh, but I also think that Cato's project in trying to restore some of these civic ideas and responsibilities about what education is really for, rather than trying to create purity and get rid of ideas you don't like. It's all about listening to others and argue. And, and it's, it's like a good dinner party rather than, than a bad one where you're really paying attention to, to others. Okay, I think that's it. Thank you so much.